Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out how to take action. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? I am desperately trying to avoid COVID. feel like I'm like dodging and weaving germs everywhere. I but... know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting here freshly boosted, so hopefully I'll be able to keep it together <laughs> for the interview. We're Excited to be entering an election season, and we're excited to be talking to Hannah Freed, who's the executive director of All Voting is Local today. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Hi. Let's start off with our traditional first question, which is, did you grow up in a political household? What's your background when it comes to political action? How did you end up involved? <laughs> yeah. Oh, did I grow up in a political household? That is an interesting question that actually I'm not sure anyone's ever asked me quite in that way I you know I think um probably like a lot of people I did come to the work that I do now because of at least to some degree because of family not necessarily political but in the certainly in the way we sort of talk think about it here in the U.S. I mean my parents were like out knocking doors for candidates or anything like that um but um, we grew up in a family that was really, uh, whose values were really informed by having left Europe under difficult circumstances, particularly for my mom's family. They come from Ukraine and immigrated to this country, well, were taken essentially forcibly from Ukraine and then came to this country. And so, you know, we had a very strong kind of immigrant ethos in our family, um, strongly sort of anti authoritarian, anti-fascist, you know, my family had come to this country to get away from all of that. Um, and I think about that a lot now, actually, because of the threats that our democracy is facing. And I think a lot about my grandparents coming to this country looking for something better. Um, and that drives a lot of the work that I do now, I would say, actually. So then what, you know, you, you had these uh, ideas, the, the sort of background, What what's your sort of journey then in, you know, figuring out what, what you wanted to do and, and how you wanted to uh, come to taking action. Yeah, uh, well, I, I finished college and I went to law school um, and uh, I got very excited as a lot of people did uh, in the sort of 07, 08 era, which is when I was in my last year of law school. I was really excited about then Senator Obama running for president. And I, you know, I think about this a lot, actually, because, you know, whatever, I'm in my early 40s now, and I think about the young, the young people who are coming into this work, and just how joyful it was then, just the sort of exuberance um, that the country was experiencing, and I, I wound up volunteering for President Obama, then a candidate, uh, and I did voter protection work, uh, primarily, and got really into that work. It changed the course of my career, actually. I went to law school to do something very specific, and I came out with a totally different plan. And it's, it's been wonderful. I think it was a great time to be doing this work, as I said, um, but I also found that uh, working in politics was really fun, uh, and protecting the vote was really, really meaningful. 
And, you know, it was not, it was really about helping people vote who had a right to vote, whether that was students or black and brown voters, right? That was what I did. And I, I have stuck with that for most of my career. And I now do that in a, in a nonpartisan uh, space. And I'm happy to sort of talk about how that, I got to that point, but that was sort of how I, my entry point was, was in law school um, and in that sort of 07, 08 uh, presidential election season. Let's talk briefly, because you've mentioned it just now, but also you mentioned it to us when we first uh, started chatting before we started recording. All Voting is Local is a nonpartisan organization. I think that's something that a lot of voting orgs in particular are really try to be really clear about because there's this sort of attempt to kind of politicize just the right to vote that, um, you know, that, that is part of why there's so many, there, there's so many challenges to, you know, getting people to the polls in a way that is like safe and representative. Can you talk a little bit about the choice to be sort of vocally nonpartisan and what that actually looks like in your organization's work? Like, what is it to be a nonpartisan voting organization? Yeah. Um, so I, the, the value of doing this work in the nonpartisan space is, uh, I mean, there's has a lot of dimensions, I would say. Um, one of them actually is not really about the question of partisanship, but just sort of a practical one, which is that um, the work of protecting the vote is year-round work. And what I mean by that is that elections officials and certainly state legislatures, um, but election officials is really you know who we work with and advocate as an organization. They make their decisions all the time. Um, they're not making decisions only in uh, you know September, October, November of a general election year. And in fact, at that point, they're really just kind of in, in an implementation mode. But they make policy decisions in what many of us consider off years. And the one experience that I, you know, one learning that I really came away from many years in politics with was, wow, if, if, if we could really be, you know, if, if communities really had the capacity, the resources, the tools um, to be advocating year round when elections officials are making the decisions that they make, we could actually really move the needle um, on access to the ballot. And so that was actually a lot of the impetus for doing this work in the nonpartisan space is that, you know, unlike political campaigns, which kind of come in and out, right, you know, they they build and then they break down, right? Um, nonpartisan work is done in, in a year-round way, or it can be. Um, so there's that. But I think, you know, to get to kind of the, the broader point of your question, uh, you know, I mean, look, you know, the access to the ballot has been politicized from the start, right? I mean, we use as a country, uh, uh, we use the systems of election administration to make very intentional decisions about whose voice gets heard and who doesn't. And we've done that since this country's founding. Um, it just happens that, uh, you know, the way that that is manifesting is <laughs> particularly um, shocking, right? It's maybe a way to, I mean, it's all pretty shocking, actually, when you think about it, right? To use uh, the, you know, the way we run our elections to keep some people out is actually, it is, it is really awful um, and really galling. Um, but the manifestation of that through the refusal to accept election results, for example, or the um, rampant spreading of disinformation, threats against elections officials, right? Um, so that has always existed to one degree or another, but it's re super, super amped up right now. Um, and that's a shift, even in the time that I've been doing this work for about 15 years. So All Voting in, is Local is a, a pretty big organization at this point. Can you talk about the process of 
creating an organization, what that looks like, like how you get started and, and how you, you know, expand as you're going, you know, and it's only been a few years. So, so how does that yeah. work? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's sort of on the topic of like things maybe you didn't set out to do. I, you know, I didn't think of myself as, you know, a sort of a founder, an inventor, a creator of things, you know, whatever. I mean, as a, as an aside, I'll say too, we shouldn't limit ourselves that way. And I think women in particular tend to, and we should not. Um, uh, but I did, I started this project that, uh, you know, got incubated at the leadership conference, which is a legacy civil rights organization. It was really incredible to be there. And it is um, it is to them that we owe a lot of the um, ability to have scaled in the way that we did. Um, we went from uh, eight staff and five states in 2018 to pushing 50 now, um, total across eight states. So it's been really awesome to see it grow. Um, and, you know, I think uh, when I think about the decision to create this you know, campaign, which is now an org, uh, you know, I think a lot about, you know, people ask a lot, like, what, how should I think about this? And like, if I want to start something, what should I do? Right. And I think um, it, really being able to say, what is the, the thing you are going to do that is different from what other people do? I think being able to answer that question really clearly um, and specifically and in a, in a, you know, maybe a couple of sentences is a good thing to be able to do. And you've got to really challenge yourself to do that because, of course, there are so many in the voting rights space, so many extraordinary historical organizations that are certainly much more of a household name than we are. Um, and I think what we have set out to do and the focus of our work, um, you know, focus on elections officials and the decisions that they make, you know, particularly kind of typically at the county level, even the city level, and to do that in a year round way. Um, that is so much of the value that we bring. And I think it's it's a needed um, and very specific dimension of the fight for voting rights um, in, a, in a space that uh, has a great need. I mean, there's plenty of work to go around. Uh, for everybody, but it's incredibly important if you're thinking about starting something new, no matter what field you're in, to really be able to say, okay, what am I going to do that's different here? Am I actually doing something different? And can I actually bring something to this work, to this fight that is going to add value? I wanted to ask a little bit about the financials of starting a new organization. That's, I think, a question that as yeah. someone who is like, I've started a nonprofit myself, but I did it in a way that wasn't going to cost any money specifically because I didn't want to have to sort of refocus on fundraising while I was trying to like accomplish the thing that I, that the, that the group was meant to accomplish. I know in a situation where you have staff in different states, you're looking at kind of a different setup. So how yeah. did you approach like raising money or, or just finding the resources to put together this organization? Yes, this is a great question. And I'm glad we're talking about this, actually, um, because it is one of the things that I think people don't like to talk about, but it's very important to be realistic about this. So I'll say a couple of things. I think one, again, incredible good fortune to have connected with the leadership conference um, that you know was a you know, major legacy leading organization and was in a you know position to host a project like this and then help it to grow into scale. Um, and that was, I mean, that was just, just absolutely great. Um, and so I cannot say enough good stuff about sort of incubation connection with existing organizations. It also gets at some of what we were talking about a little bit earlier about, 
you know, it helps you and sort of refines your theory of change to enter into an existing community, in this case, the voting rights world, um, through a, a legacy civil rights leading org that can sort of help you to think through how, you know, what is the value that you're going to bring and how is that going to be different? Um, but as a very practical matter, uh, I worked along with a, a partner um, in this project for, what was it? I don't know, nine, 10 months or something more, almost a year actually without pay. And that, you know, having, uh, working in politics is not that different. My parents are local uh, to DC. And so I was able to crash with them as did many friends over the years. Um, but that provided me with a safety net, right? I didn't have to always sort of figure out, okay, how am I going to make ends meet, right? Because I at least had a place to live. Um, now, when I was working on this, I was married and I had a kid, um, which was you know better, right? In some ways, I wasn't throwing myself to my parents' mercy, you know, living in their house again. Um, on the other hand, whatever, I had an obligation. I had a mortgage. I had a child. We had a dog, you know, all that stuff. And, it, you know, it is not for the faint of heart. It was really tough. It was really, really, really tough. And I think, you know, having a spouse that you can lean on who could kind of float us for a while was really, really helpful. And whatever. I mean, that's privilege. That's privilege right there. And I don't take that for granted. I want to ask too, uh, what it's like being a, a woman in an executive position. You know, we we talk in politics, of course, about like women are much more likely to be legislators than in the executive position. And what that's like in an organization, if you had any training in doing that, you know, if this is a thing that comes naturally to you or something that that you've had to really think about a lot. Uh, well, you'll have to have my staff if they uh, think <laughs> it comes naturally to me. <laughs> um, I've been a manager for a long time. Um, I started managing people when I was in my kind of mid-late 20s. Um, so getting getting on 15 years now. Um, I think working in political campaigns actually was a great way to learn those skills early because in that environment you get thrown into responsibility pretty early and often that means managing large-scale teams and operations um at a pretty early point in your career and you know whatever i mean either you, you figure out if you're going to be good at it or not i don't know that it was so much official training although i have done over the years some management courses and stuff through different organizations and i think that's actually really really good i would say i'm i'm i think a lot about management I don't, you know, sometimes people do ask me, do I, you know, do I spend more time thinking about sort of internal organizational management stuff than my male counterparts? And I don't know. It's a little hard for me to say kind of in any sort of scientific way. Certainly I get that question a lot, which makes me think other people think that there may be some, you know, gender dimensions to that. Um, but I think a lot about the organization and its health. And I do that because whatever, I'm not a monster. Um, I do that because I think it makes the work better. I really think that um, people being satisfied in the workplace, feeling that they are part of a shared mission that goes beyond any one task that they have helps us all to do our work more effectively. Um, and, you know, I think also that, you know, I think there were times, I will say early when I was starting this project, where I felt that I got questions that I wondered if a man in my position would also get. Like, uh, do you really think you can do this 
you really think you have the like have what it takes to stand up an organization and run it and lead it um and sometimes the questions were very connected to my own experience and i had run large scale voter protection operations for campaigns for you know uh about 8 years by the time i started this project so yeah i felt like actually i did have a lot of relevant experience um and so you know i it's hard to say sort of what prompted those questions, but I did get them sometimes and I did speculate, you know, I mean, certainly there's plenty of research that shows that women get asked for and feel that they have to provide um, a level of sort of bona fides that male counterparts don't. Um, and there's one particular study, I'm, I'm blanking on the origin of it, but it was about women, I think, in the sciences in particular, but I think it's quite extrapolatable to other fields. Um, so the, yeah, that stuff absolutely plays in. Um, uh, and I, you know, I would say to any woman thinking about starting something or being an executive that, um, you are not alone in feeling like you're getting those kinds of questions and you just have to keep pushing through. And you will get called young a lot for some reason. I feel like that's my experience is just like people constantly suggesting I'm young, but in, as if it's not like a backhanded compliment in a leadership role. Um, in any case, I wanted to shift a little bit to talking about some of the work you actually do at All Voting is Local. And I specifically, I think a lot of the time our national conversation about voting gets very mired in like, is everyone registering and like getting people to register and like, there's obviously a lot more to ensuring that people have access to the vote than just registering them. There is the sort of, there are logistical challenges beyond just registration to voting. There are informational challenges to voting. There are a lot of ways in which voting can be challenged outside of just that one simple action. And it's, it's you can see why people focus on it because it's like a, a simple and straightforward thing that people can try to do. But can you talk a little bit about what exists beyond that conversation that is, you know, that is also important to think about when we think about ensuring that people have access to the vote. Yeah, totally. So obviously registering yourself to vote and, you know, getting your family to register, so important. I would be remiss if I did not say that as a starting place, but setting that aside, um, you know, the thing I would say is that the burden should not lie with the voter. Right. We hear a lot about how, well, personal responsibility and people should take these steps and, you know, whatever it's on them. But actually, the system is is designed in a way to frustrate voters at times. Right. And I, I mean, sometimes it's quite unintentional. I, I recently went through the process of trying to get a, a parking permit for a moving truck in my city and. Whatever interactions with, you know, bureaucracy can be incredibly frustrating and voting is like that. And I was thinking to myself, as I was going through this, imagine if I were facing this and needing to get, you know, access to healthcare, right? It's been going through this or access to the ballot. And so sometimes trying to register and trying to vote is like that, right? It's just dealing with the challenges of bureaucracy and everyone can identify with that. But sometimes the system is designed as we were talking about to keep people out. And it, it, you hear about, you know, well, we need to have this in place for security, for the integrity of our system. And what I say often to that is, why? What is the, what is the problem you are trying to solve for? And usually the answer, there is no real answer, actually, because that is not what the new barrier is intended to solve. And so I'll give the example of photo ID laws, right? The requirement of a very specific type of 
photo identification for a person to be able to go vote. And, you know, a state like Ohio, which just passed one of the strictest photo ID laws in the country, right? Their student IDs are off the table, right? Um, why? You know, why? Um, or, you know, uh, a state law might say you can have two weeks of early votings from, you know, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. And local officials will decide to do the absolute bare minimum, right? They'll only do noon to four or something, right? Um, and they'll say, well, we got to do it because of the resources. But like, you know what, like figure it out. When are people going to go vote from 12 to four? They got work, they got kids, they got all kinds of obligations. So there are these very practical impediments. Some of them, you know, intended to keep out certain folks. I mean, what else can you say about an ID law that doesn't allow for student IDs? You know, how are you supposed to interpret that, right? And some of them are practical impediments, um, sometimes rooted in budgeting, sometimes, you know, rooted in just, you know, trying to make it a little tougher. And those burdens disproportionately fall. We know, I mean, study after study shows that burdens like that disproportionately fall to people of color, low-income voters, sometimes voters with disabilities, depending on the type of, of burden that it is. Um, and that's, you know, whatever. Is it asking people to count the jelly beans in a jar or guess the jelly beans in a jar, you know, whatever. I mean, some kind of, you know, horror, horrible old test. No, but it's just the same thing gussied up to look better. So all voting is local, uh, you mentioned is in eight states. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. why those eight states and are there particular things you do in some of those states and not others? Like what, what that work looks like? Yeah. So there are some, um, well, I'll say first, so we're in Arizona, Nevada. We're in Florida, Georgia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And there are some things that we advocate for. Um, there's sort of some basic principles that we advocate for across all of our states, right? We want you know, widespread access to voter registration and secure and stable online voter registration systems. We want people to have really robust access to vote by mail and lots of drop boxes where they can return their ballots and no silly hurdles that they have to get across to get a, an absentee ballot. And then we want lots of in-person voting because in-person voting is so great and people love that too. Um, but yeah, our work is super state specific because communities are different, geographies are different. I mean, think about Florida versus Arizona, right? I mean, these are totally different kinds of states. You know, they got, you know, Air, uh, Florida has, I don't know, like five times the number of counties or something as Arizona. I mean, it's just, you know, it's so big. And Georgia has 159 counties. I mean, these are big. Some of these states are really big and super dense. Some are more rural. There's just a ton of variation. And so we really, you know, our staff is from the states where they work or have lived there a very long time and are really part of the communities where we work. And so we are, are, work is really responsive to the communities that we work with and what their needs are um, and what works best for them in terms of their ability to register, to vote, and to cast a ballot that's going to count. Um, and the way we pick the states, you know, it's, you know, so does people ask, oh, are you going to do any new states anytime soon? And, it, you know, it's a very long and thoughtful process. I talked about how, you know, you want to make sure you're going to bring value. And I think that's something we really try and do. Is there an organization that's already doing work that's, you know, really, really, really similar to ours? Um, will this be welcomed by groups that are already doing that work and have been in some cases for decades, right? I mean, we really want to go where this work is going to be welcomed and needed and embraced as part of the broader movement to protect access to the ballot. And so, you know, we, you can hear from it that we have these some sort of geographic kind of pairings. That's actually how I name the states is because I just sort of imagine the map of the country and it helps me get through them all. 
And, you know, we, we started in Arizona and we didn't work in Nevada initially. And we started working in Nevada back in 20, I guess it was early 2020, maybe late 2019. Um, and, you know, we were thinking about, you know, what are the communities that we work in? Um, you know, what lessons can we draw from one state that can, we could jump state lines and bring those to the next state over? Um, what are some of the geographies that, you know, are similar or different? Um, Arizona and Nevada geographically are somewhat similar in the sense you've got a couple kind of big urban centers and then a lot of rural areas, right? Um, so there's a lot that we learned from our work in Arizona that we could bring to Nevada. Um, and then, you know, one of the things we thought about too was after the Supreme Court gutted core provisions of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case back in 2013, uh, you know, we started, one, one of the big holes there was that there um, wasn't that same level of federal oversight of changes to voting that could negatively impact historically disenfranchised communities. And that was what Section 5 had required, something called preclearance, uh, which was a process by which um, the federal court or U.S. DOJ would approve changes to voting in certain states that had long histories of voter suppression. Some of the states where we work now were covered by Section 5, but of course no longer are because of that court case. And so part of what we thought we could do through this organization at that time, a campaign now full organization was um, provide some of that kind of coverage that had been lost by Section 5 and really look at voting changes, assess them. We use data to understand, okay, how is this voting law going to change voter access? Who's going to be impacted by it. If it's a good law, okay, great. If it's a bad law, what does this actually mean? Who's going to hurt? Who's going to feel that pain? Um, and so that's some of what was lost through Section 5. So as a result of that, we work in some states that were, were covered partially or in full under the Voting Rights Act as well. That was another dimension that we took into account. So in the course of your work, it looks like you don't just sort of like have your own kind of operation in these states, but you also give grants to other organizations who are working in related spaces. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what specifically your your own staff and your grants program empowers people to do. So like beyond just people should vote and we should have better laws about voting, but like how can we make sure that we have more accessible laws when it comes to voting? What what are the actual things that people can do to do more than just ensure that their friends and family are registered? Yeah, so our whole, all of our work is totally premised on and dependent on partnership uh, because our we believe that when election officials hear from the communities that they're supposed to serve, um, that they will either be encouraged to keep doing what they're doing if they're doing great work um, or feel some obligation to do better, right? To do more for the voters they're supposed to serve. And so what we do, I mentioned, you know, our staff is from the states where we work, the towns where we work, you know, many of our staff have, you know, lived with this very same threats that, you know, we, we work on as an organization, um, you know, as, as people individually, you know, they come from historically disenfranchised communities themselves. Uh, and so we work with communities, um, to, for example, go to a board of elections meeting and uh, say, you know, hey, we, we've been saying for years that we need a new voting location because it takes, you know, three buses or whatever, right, to get to the location that you've made available to us. And not only are we saying that now, but, you know, we've, we have some data to back that up. And this is actually a real example. Uh, you know, we've, 
you know, we know that white voters in this community only have to travel, um, you know, 10 minutes by car, but we have to all travel 30 minutes by car, for example, right? And that's, that's a, you can make a really powerful case that way, right? And so um, what we do is we, you know, we partner up with organizations that, you know, locally that want, have members or, you know, are active in a community that wants to advocate themselves. And, you know, we'll work with them and say, hey, this is great that you want to go, um, let's, let's figure out what, what's, what's the strongest case that we can make here, right? Because we're not litigators, right? We don't take this work to court, but we look for ways to make a strong case. And maybe that's a, that's going to a board of elections meeting. Maybe it's talking to a local reporter and getting some media attention. Sometimes we'll do something like a rally. Um, but, you know, a lot of the time it's, it's going to board of elections meetings where they're making decisions and, and community members saying, hey, this is what we really want here. And we're, we're going to keep coming to these meetings um, un, until you, you know, until it happens. Um, so that's, you know, whether it's through subgranting or some of the data work that we do um, or, um, you know, helping, you know, figure out sort of what's the strongest message here. What's the, the strongest way to, what's the strongest case we can make. Um, that's what our staff does uh, every day. So if our listeners would like to get involved in the work that you're doing, how can they do that? Yes. Well, first of all, you should follow us on all our, on all our socials. Um, we're at Voting is Local um, on X. Uh, and we're on Instagram as well, Voting is Local. Um, so you should do that. And I think, you know, if you live in one of these eight states and you're interested in um, engaging in the way that I've talked about, right? Because it's telling your neighbor to register, becoming a poll worker is another thing I'll say is a great thing to do if you want to be an election worker, the person who helps check people in polls, huge need for that. Um, but also, if you really want to get involved and you want to start going to board of elections meetings and you want to, you know, advocate for your community about what's needed, sure that your neighbors can vote. Um, connecting with us through social is the best way to do that. And we can, we can plug folks in um, because that's, I mean, you know, this is, is a long struggle in the fight for voting rights and it has involved litigation and it has involved legislation and it has also involved communities demanding change. Um, and that is, that is the work that Alvonia's Local does together with uh, many incredible state and local partners that we work with. Well, Hannah, thank you. This was uh, really fun, and it's it's great to hear a little bit about the the process of how an organization comes into being, and uh, and to hear about the great work you're doing. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. Thank you.